Happy Sunday to everyone. If you have a Bible, please open it to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The saints in Ukraine and Poland send their greetings. We worshiped uh, with one church in Ivano-Frankivsk, and then we worshiped in Wroclaw with Brother Sebastian and his, the saints there, and everyone greets you, sends their love. It's good to be back. Only uh, last night, just before dinner, we read that the town that we were in had been shelled oh by Russian rockets, uh, which, I mean, it's very random. The, the city had not been shelled uh, thus far, and it, and it just was. So it, continue to pray for them. The war weariness seems quite obvious, um, but it was a good time. Titus and I met a lot of people. It's very interesting to... You know, here we have these meetings about how we're going to spend money in Jeep. It's nice to go there and do the incarnational <coughs> ministry and see the people that you're actually actually making decisions about. Um, it was very eye-opening. So we'll, we'll have some more to say about that later. Next week, actually, um, there was a kind of a mantra Titus and I had early on, and it, and it was, uh, to those who much is given, much is required. So next, uh, next Sunday, I'm going to be taking a break from Titus and preaching on that text. Uh, as sort of a retrospective on the three weeks that we spent there. Um, But today, we're going to go to Titus chapter 2 and look at verse 6. And before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day, this glorious sunshine, this warmth, this vibrant life that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the songs that um, we have sung and the prayers that we have offered For the testimony, Lord, of the creed, we thank you for our fellowship. We thank you for this place in which we can gather to worship you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would minister to us now as we open your word to understand it. Lord, that he would give us a wealth of knowledge, that we might know you better, know ourselves better, that we might love you more and love one another more. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, I mean, it's been four weeks now, so I have something controversial to say. I've just been waiting and waiting. I know, everyone's shocked. But I do not disagree that one of the greatest needs of our day is that we need more government. So much more government. Lots and lots and lots and lots more government. And if you are a libertarian, I am sorry. The problem is not less government. Having, or the, the solution isn't having less government. The solution that we need is more government. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled in all things. In all things. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled in all things. Now, I, if, you, if you have an ESV Bible, you can tell that I am actually changing the words. Because if you look in um, half of the translations, it actually says be controlled, self-controlled in all things. But in the ESV, they they say be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be the model of good works. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek, you can attach this phrase in all respects to either the self-control or the model of good works. I think you, it's, it's, it's actually very obscure. What do you attach this all things to? And traditionally, in, in, since the English Bible first came about, they have always said, be self-controlled in all things. That, that's what we've been saying from the beginning. That's how we've always interpreted it, which I actually think, when you look at the Greek and you start pulling it apart, it makes more sense. 
It's not that you're supposed to just merely be self-controlled, self-governed. It's that you're to be self-governed in everything, right? There's, there, and, and we know this. We know the Lord that we serve. Is there any aspect of your life that he says, okay, you know what? I don't really want that. I'll take all these other things, but that you can have. No, what, what, what is the commandment that he gives his disciples when he first meets them? Die to yourself entirely, bear your cross daily, utterly renounce yourself in, in all things, and follow me. Okay? And so this makes more sense, what Paul is saying here. Be self-controlled in all things. And so that government that we need more of is not in Washington, D.C., it's not in Olympia, it's not at the... Uh, down the street here at City Hall, the government that we need more of is self-government. Self-government is a lost virtue. Self-government is a lost art. Self-government is a lost doctrine. And it is something that we're going to spend all morning discussing because it is what ails us. We don't need more statists. We need more self-control. Now, the verb in verse 6, to be self-controlled, is drawn from the Sophron word group, and it is applied, as I've said before, to every gender and age group throughout the book of Titus. Everyone is told to be self-controlled. Now, the older ladies are told to do certain things. The older men are told to do certain things. The younger women, the younger men, everybody is kind of given their responsibility specific to their age and specific to their sex. The one consistent thing that everyone is told is to be self-controlled. Now, why? Because Jesus was very concerned about our relationship to self. It's, it's, it's the beginning and end, essentially, of Christian ethics. What is your relationship with yourself? Are you self-indulgent? Are you self-justifying? Right? Is, your God, is your God yourself, or is your God Jesus Christ? This is what Christians must be. They must be self-controlled. Now, this this word sophron, it, it's translated in a lot of different ways. It's translated as self-controlled. It's translated as sensible. It's translated as prudent, as moderate. All of these indicate what? A balanced and respectable lifestyle, right? Think about it. Are you sensible, right? Be sensible in all things. Be prudent in all things. Be moderate in all things, this is a balanced and respectable lifestyle. Because of the prevalence of self-control in the pastorals and its dominance in Greek ethics, if you, look, if you start reading, start looking into Greek ethics, they talk a lot about self-control. This was in, very important to the Romans. The Romans had no problem with pederasty. Uh, they had no problem with homosexuality. They had no problem with penetrating little boys. But my goodness, you better not eat too much at the dinner table. Right? You better not speak out of turn. You better know what, what action you're supposed to take, what, what you're supposed to say, when you're supposed to say it, how much you're supposed to eat. And, and self-control was extremely important to the Greeks and to the Romans. And so if you look into eth ethicists at the time in the first century, they, everybody talks a lot about self-control. But what is the difference between Roman and Greek self-control and biblical self-control. Because Paul talks about it a great deal. As I've said, he tells everyone to be self-controlled. But is it the same thing, right? Were Greeks and Romans self-controlled in everything? In everything. Uh, and it's really funny. If you read the, the, the Makers of Rome, it's a fantastic book. It's about all of the great men of Rome, 
uh, through its ages as a republic. And, and one of the greatest virtues, the thing that everyone wanted to be, is a man who was prudent, a man who was self-controlled, a man who was dignified. It, it, it was one of the chief virtues. Now, self-mastery in the Christian sense has an element of humility that is lacking in the Greek moralists. The Greek moralist thinks you can, think you can attain self-control. If you just practice, if you just work hard enough, if you just gin up enough, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you too can be self-controlled. But what do we learn from Galatians? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that is given to you. It is not something that you merely grow in all by yourself. So it, how many of you in, in the last year, okay, I'll be... How many of you in the last week, let's be more honest, have thought, you know what I need is more self-control? And so you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all the cookies from the cupboard, I'm going to put them on the really high shelf, and it's going to be really hard to reach them. And you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all the beer in the garage fridge, and I'm going to get these flavored waters, and we'll put them in the, in the house fridge, and then that's what I'll drink when I'm thirsty and when it's hot. And how well does that usually go for us? Right? I, I, I remember, I, I'm like, you know what, I'll just smoke once a week. I'll just smoke my pipe once a week, and then, we'll, and then everything will be fine. My health will be fine. My lungs will be fine. And I think, yeah, I'm going to do it this time. But then I walk by the pipe, and I take the pipe out in the backyard, and I'm smoking the pipe before I even know what's going on. Because we are convinced that we can, by our own efforts, become more self-controlled. But the word of God is very clear. Self-control comes from the Lord. It is a gift. Self-mastery, in the Christian sense, has an element of humility that is lacking in Greek and other moralists. It is essentially religious in the New Testament, as we see actually in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, doing what? Bringing salvation for all people. That's wonderful. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the same grace that saves us, the grace that descended from heaven and makes us the children of God, is the grace that's training us in self-control and godly living now. And so did you know, right? That's not, how many of you guys have ever thought grace is like a boxing coach? Grace is a trainer. Grace has got the towel around his thing, and, he, and he's driving the car behind you, and he's making sure that you run up all those steps in Philadelphia. Grace is the trainer who's making you chase chickens in the backyard. Yes, I'm referring to Rocky. Right? Grace, is the, Grace is the one out there with the giant tire, and he gives you the sledgehammer, and he says, okay, now we're going to whack this tire, and we're going to get our muscles bigger. Now, how many of you guys ever think of grace in that fashion? No, when we think of it gaining in self-control, and in upright and godly living in the present age, we think it's us and our micro, um, our micro habits, right? If I just make little tiny adjustments, I'll gain all this self-control, all this self-mastery. But it's the same grace that saves us, that is training us to be self-controlled and upright in the godly age. Now, Paul also says, urge. In verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, urge means to earnestly support or encourage a response or action. 
Clearly, this is not something that the young men are going to do themselves. They need to be told again and again and again. They need it reinforced again and again and again. They need to be encouraged and supported in, in this response, this action, and it emphasizes the need for constant moral reminder towards self-mastery. You, you as young men, now some of us aren't as young as we used to be, but we know, right? What do we need to, how, how easy is it to just get out of bed at 6 a.m.? You know, when I was 16 years old, you know, you know what I'm gonna start doing is get up at 6 a.m. No, I never thought that one time. I thought, why am I getting up before noon, right? And, and, and first, my dad sends my, my little brother, right, when I was that age, and then he sends my older brother, and if I still wasn't out of bed, which usually didn't happen, my father came himself, and good God, I needed constantly to be urged in the right direction. I, I, right? I was a little kid. I had the swear jar when I was a teenager. I needed to be urged to self-control. So my mom says, all right, every time you say that word, you're going to put a dollar in this jar. Okay, well, eventually I was broke. Right? I was like signing over my whole paycheck. <laughs> but it was an effort on my mom's part to, to urge me in the right direction. Because, again, self-control is not something that you're going to just simply... Um, acquire all by yourself. It's something you need to be urged in. It's something you need to be trained in. It's something you need to be pushed towards. Now, self-mastery is the foundation of a strong and godly life in growth and fruit. If you want growth and you want fruit and you want a godly life, what you need more of is self-mastery. If a person cannot govern himself, if he cannot master his passions, he will certainly not have a good relationship with his neighbor or with his God. His life will be marked by major excesses. A person who has self-mastery is even-handed. His passions are under control. He makes proper use of his drives and desires, and his manner of life is not one of extremes. And this is something that's lost. You know, uh, pastors that I know, we've been talking a lot about this, is the fact that young men aren't accomplishing as much as they used to because they're giving away their sexual strength too early. They're not waiting till they're married. They're living a promiscuous life. And, and what they're doing is they're giving away one of the prim primary motivators that used to cause men to learn self-control, to have self-mastery, and to be motivated to get a decent job and a home and a girl. Okay? And, and, and there's a fancy name for it. I'm sorry, I'm jet-lagged. I can't remember the name of it right now. But there's a term for this. Because think about a young man who's 17 years old, and he's like, you know what? I want a wife, for obvious reasons. I would like to have a large family. I'd like to settle down. I'd like a woman in my life. And nowadays, you just go on the internet, and you find one. But back in the day, you would have to what? You'd have to actually have a decent job. You'd have to be a respectable person. You'd have to have something to offer. And then what you do is you go and you bring a woman into your household, and you make a kingdom, and you've, you've harnessed all that energy all that desire into its proper channel, and you actually make something of your life. Now, this is, this is an old idea that is gone, right? We wonder why there are 30-year-old men who live in their mom's basement and just play video games all the time. And, and this is it. It's this self-mastery in this particular area that's causing so many grown-up baby boys <clears throat> to continue to live in this sort of in-between life. Self-mastery is the thing, when you look around, that is missing. Right? When we look at the younger generations, what is it that we don't see? Do you see a generation like your grandparents? Right? I remember my grandparents, my, my grandmother's hands. She was, <coughs> excuse me, she was in her 70s, 
And I remember she still had the scar from picking cotton when she was seven. Now, that woman used to save everything. She saved tinfoil, she saved plastic bags, right? She, she would never eat too much, she would never, she had all this self-mastery, and how did she get it? Through a life of what? Work and labor. And what we have now are, are young people who spend their energy and, and have no self-control, nobody tells them no, and, and it's this cultural problem that we have. And then you go into the church and you say, you start talking about self-government. You start talking about self-control. Like we start talking about what's the most important virtue. And, and, and generally, when it comes to, to ethics, Christian ethics, as C.S. Lewis has said, we've exchanged a positive ethic, love God and love your neighbor, for a negative ethic, don't eat, don't drink, don't touch. And sometimes when I start talking about self-control, people get a little confused here. What I'm not talking about is self-denial in the sense of like you just don't have things that you enjoy. Right? The, uh, the true, true self-mastery is a man who can have things he enjoys, but what he does is he doesn't have more of it than it's good for him. Right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't eat too much. He doesn't drink too much. He doesn't um, sleep too much. He doesn't sleep too little. He, he knows exactly what he needs to do. For, right? He has a balanced and healthy life. And that's what self-mastery is about. It's not merely about self-denial. Now, John Calvin says that Paul exhorts that all Christians should be temperate. That's how he interprets the word self-control, temperate. Um, temperate. For temperance, as Plato had said, cures the whole understanding of man. It is as if he had said, let them be well-regulated and obedient to reason. So in Calvin's day, he understood something that even Plato understood. What we're talking about isn't just self-denial as far as like, you know, how many tacos you eat. We're talking about reason. We're talking about um, the ability to think clearly. We're talking about self-mastery is somebody who understands this much and no more, right? This much and no more. He's able to see exactly um, what is required in exactly the right moment. This is why prudence comes in. This is why they translate it as prudence. A prudent man knows how much and at what time he ought to, he ought to um, enjoy things and, and ought to withhold things in equal measure. Self-mastery is at the heart of Christian ethics and the foundation to a decent and well-ordered society. Now, our second president, Mr. John Adams, made this well-known claim. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, how is that constitution governing us to this day? Right now, why? Why, why is the constitution a dead letter? Right? I, I, would, I would argue it's not simply because there are people who don't really believe in its authority. I believe the reason the constitution does, is no longer good for us is because what we have lost is self-mastery. What we have lost is the virtuous man. Because the constitution right, is, is about what? Self-governance. It's about self-governance. It is the assumption that it makes throughout. Now, George Washington said similarly, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And so what, what, I'm, what I want to argue for here is that the Christians who founded this nation, and yes, they were Christians, and yes, it's a Christian nation. See me afterwards if you have a problem with that. Their, their very concept of a well-ordered government, of a well-ordered society, were well-ordered men. Men who had self-mastery, self-government, 
we're capable of being governed well. You can't govern people otherwise. Because what do you see now? As morality decreases, as people have less and less self-control, less and less self-government, it's why the government gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You need more guns, you need more armored cars, you need more lawyers, you need more jails, you need more places to put the, th the thugs and the thieves, because if people will be governed, and they either govern themselves or other men will govern them. And so, you know, we could load up in vans and drive down to DC and start rally rallying and, you know, we can get out our, our AR-15s and open carry and we can make these protests and we talk about limiting the size of government. When, when the number one thing that you can do to limit the size of, of, of the local, state, and federal government is to increase the amount of self-mastery that you have. It's to teach your children self-control because a well-governed man is easily governed by the state. Okay, now once we, right, once we put the things in the proper order, now once we actually start teaching our children to be self-governed and we have more self-mastery, then we can start dealing with the statists. But I think what we want, we, we go for this top-down approach that is all wrong. It starts with the individual, the individual heart, the individual will, the individual person. Now, and, and so now you hear this, and what, what are you gonna do? You're gonna go away from here, and you'll be like, okay, so tomorrow I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna do more push-ups. Tomorrow I'm gonna eat less, <laughs> right? Is that what I'm talking about? How does one increase in self-mastery? It is the grace that saved you. That grace will train you in self-control and godly living in the present age. And what is that grace that descended from heaven? Christ. Christ is the answer. Christ is the one who saves you. Christ is the one who trains you in self-mastery so that, right, and through that, he works it, 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 the self-mastery out into all levels of government to have a well-ordered society. Because rec recall, what, what is going on through this whole letter? Titus is there to put what in order? To put the island of Crete in order. And the fundamental way of putting the island of Crete in order isn't starting with some top-down revolutionary reformation ideas, but to teach people how to be self-controlled. And how are they self-controlled? By submitting themselves to Christ. That's how you, organize, that's how you have a well-ordered society. And this is what people like John Adams and George Washington understood when they created this nation. And it is lost on us in, in our day. We don't even know what the problem is. I would argue. Now, Adams and Washington were not mouthing some rhetorical platitudes. They were voicing a conclusion based on a robust historical and philosophical premise, a tenet held almost universally by the founders that only a virtuous people could sustain a republic that the founders had designed. Christian virtue begins with denying self and following Christ Theologian A.A. Hodge speaks of the essence of the new heart, the regeneration of man, as consisting of this, the implantation of a new governing principle of life. From the, the fact that it is a new birth, John 3.3, 3, a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, wrought by the mighty power of God, an execution of his eternal purpose of salvation, and that it is as necessary for the most moral and amiable as for the morally abandoned. Now, Let's unpack this for a second. In the first century, were the Jews that Jesus met outwardly self-controlled people? 
Were they well governed? Yes, we could all actually, I'm with Jesus on this. We should, be, we should be very careful criticizing them because our righteousness at times isn't half their righteousness, right? There's a great deal of outward self-control that we could learn from first century Judaism. Yes, I said it. It's a day of controversies. But what were they like internally? What was the problem? The problem was that externally, everything looked great, and they were, they were extremely self-controlled. But internally, it was out of control. And, and what, what Titus is being told here is, listen, guys, young men, like all Christians, must be self-controlled in all things. Your heart needs to be self-controlled, and your hands need to be self-controlled. Your mind needs to be self-controlled. You need to have self-mastery over the whole man, not part of the man. Right? Does Jesus want your brain and not your heart? Does he want your hands and not your heart? Does he want the outside of you and not the inside of you? He wants all of you. And, and, and what the Christian life is, is you have a new governing principle. What, who, who is the Lord? Not me, it's Jesus. What is his will? Not mine. What is his aim? Not mine. Who are ma- who's made in his image? And what is required of me towards those image bearers? Right? You have this whole new way of thinking about everything. Wh- who is he and what has he said about this? Right? Should, should we do X, Y, or Z? Right? You're sitting down to make a decision, and do you just, do you, how often do you just sit down and, and don't think about the word of God at all? How often do you sit down and just not pray? How, right? we, we understand this on a fundamental level. The problem is, is, is that we need to work it out into every area of our lives. Okay? There, there are things in your life in which you have not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is always the problem with the people of God. In first century Judaism, it was obvious that it was the, they were whitewashed tombs. But what's our problem? What's our problem? And I'm not going to answer the question. I'm asking a rhetorical question <laughs> that you guys get to go home and, and, and ask yourselves. Right? But how often is the problem the government? How often is the problem of the government in Washington, the government in Olympia, the government in King County? Oh my goodness, it's all those people who are controlling the media. It's all those people on Facebook. It's all the, it's all the medical industry. It's all the, right? We talk about the government of medical, the, the medical system, the government of the courts, the government of the police, the government. We talk about all these governments, but how is the self-mastery going? Are you growing in the grace of self-control in the present age? Right? Or, or is, that, is it merely something that you're looking forward to in the next stage? Well, you know, grace has come and it saved me. And one day I will die and then I'll wake up and I'll have complete self-mastery. It'll be amazing. And you're like, I can't wait. That's going to be a good day. Right? And it's some future event. What Titus wants, or, or what Paul wants Titus to know is this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, And if you, and if you have people in your household who have self-mastery, it is a household that has self-mastery. And if, and if a church is full of households that have self-mastery, the church has self-mastery, and, and you see how this works itself out. Then you have a society full of churches with self-mastery and what ends up happening. Then it's governable. Then it's a place 
where, where freedom actually exists, liberty really exists, and, and you, you don't have to lock your doors at night. What, one of the things I could not believe when we were in Vroxlav is, is how they just let the teenagers wander around downtown. Like, Titus and I would be sitting there and be like, how old do you think those kids are, Titus? Like, 10? Packs of 10-year-olds, like, wandering around. They couldn't have been older than that. And, and I thought I would never in a million years let my 10-year-old wander around by himself in my own neighborhood. Like, I would never be like, oh, you know what, uh, Lewis? You're, you're about that age. Sorry. Around that age. Why, why don't you just head out and go wherever you want to go? I would never in a million years do this. So this is a question I ask. Well, how is it that you guys allow these packs of kids to get on buses? Are you joking me? I would not put my kids on a public transportation bus, even in Linwood. And, and, and <laughs> this is always the answer that I get when I'm there. Well, it's a Catholic country. And, and there's a lot to be said about this. Okay? There's a lot to be said about that. But, but one of the things that that means is that there is, a, there is a sense of public morality that they have in a place like Poland that you don't have here. Now, not everywhere in Poland, but certainly in, in the main city that we were in, I was like, you must live, like, you're not worried about junkies stabbing your kids. You're not worried about, like, the homeless camps that they have to walk. Well, you go, there's none. They don't have those things. Uh, Titus, Titus also noticed that there's not a lot of immigrants. Right? You go to other countries in Europe, and you know what it's full of. People who just wandered in. You don't, and, 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 like, there's an immigration problem because they don't, they're letting in all kinds of people. Look at what's been going on in Paris over the summer. They've been, they've been burning whole cities down. Because you have all these unruly un, uh, young men who come over who are angry and they don't have any self-mastery. It is amazing to live in a, to go into a city where there, there is so much self-mastery that there are packs of 10-year-olds wandering around. I couldn't hardly believe it. And, and is that po like, was that possible in America at one point? Like I remember, I remember being eight years old and riding my bike like a mile and a half to go to my favorite comic book store. And, and I would, I mean, like now, <laughs> I send my teenage boys to do something like this, and they all go armed with knives. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. No, okay. The problem in this country is a problem of too little self-government. Too little self-government. And the more of it we have, the less actual civil government we need. Now, Paul says that young men are to be self-controlled in everything, suggesting that self-control is the fundamental characteristic of outward Christian conduct. Christ wants the whole man, not a compartmentalized, divided, or double-minded man. In his epistle to Titus, Paul regards self-control from a theological perspective. It is made possible by Christ and appropriated by faith in Christ. That's why Titus chapter 2, 11, and 12 are so important. It's, a, it, it, it's because of Christ that we can be self-controlled, and it's appropriated to us by faith in Christ. So the more faith we have in Christ, the more hope we have in Christ, the more belief we have in Christ, the more submission we have to Christ, the more self-mastery we have. Lack of self-control is the natural tendency of fallen man. And as we see, when the newly liberated nation of Israel left to itself while Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, what was the first thing they did? Right? How, how would you describe Israel after Moses is like, hey, I'm going to go up and I'm going to talk to God. And here you have the Israelites who were slaves, and, and they are newly freed. They're given liberty. 
<clears throat> and, and what is the rallying cry of American conservatives for the last five years? Just give us more liberty. If you simply gave us more liberty, everything would be fine. But here's Israel, who's, who's led out of captivity. And how does Paul describe what they, do, what they did next? Well, if you turn to 1 Corinthians, remember that letter that Titus himself delivered. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 13. This is what happens when people are given liberty and don't have self-mastery. It says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And as those who are Christians, right, for freedom, Christ has set us free. True Christian liberty comes to us in Christ, and, and, and what happens, what are we going to do with that liberty if we don't have self-mastery? Are we going to be any different than Israel when they had come out of the out of the wilderness, and suddenly had their freedom. As soon as they had their freedom, and dad goes up on the mountain to, t- to talk to God, they, and, and the word is they rose up and played. The word is they had an orgy. Okay? So the people of God are given freedom, and the first thing they do with it is build two golden calves and then have an orgy. Okay? And so here's the United States, one of the freest countries in the world, and, and what do we have? Right? A pot, pot shops? Free porn, right? I mean, a porn, porn hub is now suing the state of Utah because Utah wants you to have an age requirement before you log into the website. And, and porn hub is like, how dare you not give these people freedom? How dare you limit their liberty? Right? And, and so liberty in the modern sense is what? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Okay. Now, on the flip side of that, most of us need a statist government. Most of us require the government that we have now. Why? Because we do not have self-mastery. I understand, I understand the age in which we live and the left-handed power and the soft tyranny in which we live, but what would happen if suddenly the United States was given the same freedom it had in 1840? Okay, forget about it. Forget, like, forget income taxes. Forget, uh, the, like, we'll close all these departments of the federal government, like the education department, and, and you don't need passports anymore. Forget about it, right? Everybody's just, we'll go back to liberty in 1840. Could you imagine the chaos, the absolute and utter chaos? Because we think the problem is that we don't have enough liberty. And, and I, like, let's set that aside for a moment and talk about the fact that we do not have enough self-mastery. Right, my, my, my sweet son, Peter, right? we, we smoked this big piece of halibut, and he gets his halibut, and he's so, he's so excited now because we've given him like one of those little cheese spreaders as a knife, right? and, and he thinks he's such a big boy. And, and this is one of those things we've been through a number of times with, with our sons and, and our daughters. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to give the child a steak knife. Why? Because I don't want to get stabbed with it. That's why. 
And, and not even out of any sort of like mischief on his part, but if you give a five-year-old a steak knife, someone is going to get stabbed. I remember a son on his eighth birthday who was given a very large knife, actually a knife that my father was a little worried about because he said that's long enough to reach his livers. Like his liver and his kidneys all at the same time. He's like, that's a big knife. So we present the child with the knife. He takes the knife to open the next birthday present and probably cuts himself and needs four stitches. Right? It, it's dangerous. And this is, this is how we also explain foul language in my house. I, I'm like, okay, listen, boys, there are words that as men you will need to learn how to use. But they're like knives. So that word is like a sharp knife. You're not old enough. Right? I don't let you go out with an axe or a chainsaw and just start cutting wood in the backyard by yourself. And that word, that knife, it's a very similar kind of thing. Just giving people liberty without self-mastery is extremely dangerous, right? And to prove it, why don't we just let Brooks drive the Evie's car home today? And if we just gave Brooks total liberty, be like, hey, man, freedom. For freedom, Christ set us free. Liberty is what we all need more of. Brooks, here's the keys, okay? And we would all stand here and watch them crash into the Wendy's promptly. <laughs> and, and this is the argument that Christian or non-Christian conservatives are constantly making. And, and we, have to now, we have to listen to what they're saying. Give us more freedom. And, my, and the immediate question is, okay, how much self-mastery do you have? Because I, I, right, I have children. I, I do not want you to have more liberty than you have self-mastery to control. This is the problem in this country with guns. Because the freedom of guns still remains on a, on a very fundamental level, and, and it's very free to have guns. And there is so very little self-mastery. And, and, and you add to that narcotics, and you add to that mental illness, and bada-bing, bada-boom, we got all kinds of problems. And our argument always is just, hey, no, it's right there in the Constitution. Liberty is the point, and so give us more liberty. Give us more freedom. Stop taking so much of my money. I'm sorry, I've seen how you've spent your money. And I actually think the government should just keep taking it. <laughs> I mean, at this point, right? C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was walking down the street in Oxford with a friend. And this homeless guy wanders up and asks for money. And C.S. Lewis takes out this pile of cash and gives this man this like, huge pile of cash. And his, and his friend says, what, do you, what are you doing? He, he's just going to spend it on booze. And C.S. Lewis says, well, what did you think I was going to spend it on? <laughs> <laughs> and, and his friend was like, well, I mean, okay. I mean, you got me there. And, and when it comes to taxes, right, we, we, we give so much of our money to a government who spends it unwisely. And frankly, would you spend it any better? Because you would spend it on what you desire and not what they desire. Okay, I grant you that. But is it necessarily wiser? Well, you'd buy more guns with it. Okay, well, let's go back a couple of paragraphs and do some review. Because more liberty is not the thing that's going to save us. We will get to the more liberty part. What we need first is more self-mastery. This self-mastery or self-government, as it was formerly understood by Christians, is the most important form of government. Moderns like to debate which form of government is best. 
We talk a lot about democracy or communism or fascism. We talk about the electoral college. We talk about libertarian ideals. But the most foundational form of government is self-government. Most people think of government only as a centralized state, like the federal government or the EU or the UN. But the use of the word government historically was always qualified. It was always qualified. You said church government. You said household government. You said self-government. Now, a popular textbook from 1903 called The Elements of Civil Government states the family is a form of government established for the good of children themselves and the first government that each of us must obey. And this is how I explain it to my sons. Listen, son, if you will not obey my government, if you will not obey this simple government of two in this household, right, I, you will never obey the government out in, this, in the world. I'm teaching you what it means, right? I'm, I'm teaching you what it means to have to obey a government. And, and, it, right? and this is what we learned from the law, right? What would happen to young men who would strike their parents or they were unruly? People would bring their children to Moses and, and they'd say, listen, this is an ungovernable child. And they would put him to death. Because if by the time you're 18 years old and you, and you are ungovernable by your parents, you are going to end up either dead or in prison or, or just somebody else's problem for the remainder of your short life. And, and if you don't believe me, go to Chicago. Visit Chicago. It's full of, fa of fatherless young men who have no sense of self-mastery, who have no idea about th they, they were without the most fundamental form of government that they needed when they were small, and now they are ungovernable. Now, the textbook goes on to describe five areas of civil government, the township or civil district, the village, the city, the county, the state, and the United States. The term government, as the older educational definition indicates, was much broader than the centralized federal state. The textbook author worked with the presupposition that there is personal, family, church, school, and civil governments, each having legitimate realms of authority. The state was seen as one among many governments, and Noah Webster, that famous dictionary compiler, his definition of government in his American Dictionary of the English Language states this. Webster defined the government as direction, regulation. These precepts will serve for the government of our conduct, control, restraint. Men are apt to neglect the government of their temper and passions. So this is him defining the word government, and he's using all these phrases and words. But what do you notice here? Is he describing a federal government? The very first definition of the word government has to do with individual um, virtues of an individual person. He's talking about a person. Noah Webster, as recently as 1828, which is not that long ago, defined government in terms of personal self-control, while most moderns largely limit their definitions of government to the realm of institutions, civil, and status. For example, if you go online right now, the current Webster's Dictionary, poor Noah Webster, he probably has rolled over his grave 50 times a day. But if you look up in Noah's current Webster's, Webster's Dictionary as it's currently found online, this is the definition of government. The body of persons that constitutes the governing authority of a political unit or organization such as the officials comprising the governing body of a political unit and constituting the organization, uh, constituting the organization as an active agent. Wait, what? 
right? Noah was like, listen, government is about what you, how you control yourself. It's about how you have mastery over yourself. It's about your virtue. It's about your holiness. It's about how you are acting. And now when we talk about government, we have one form of government, and it's communist, right? It is the top-down way that we are controlled because we have no self-control. And, and we think what we need more of is liberty. Government in our Christian heritage begins with the individual and extends outward. Secular conservatives have recently taken up this mantra, be ungovernable. I myself have said it. In, in the last couple of years, and I repent of having said it, one of the exhortations I gave all of you was be ungovernable. Now, what did I mean by that? Okay, well, it, make it more difficult for Jay Inslee to control you, right? When you go to the store, don't wear the mask. And this is the way I was talking. But is that what Christ wants of us? Does he want people who are ungovernable? No, he wants people who have self-government. And, and they work that self-government out into all of the, the smaller governments that they're a part of, in their own home, in their church, in their school, in their work, in, in the local society, in the state, in the county, and in the, in, in the larger state or nation in which they live. Do not be ungovernable. Right? That's chaos. That's chaos. Be governable and, and begin with yourself. Right? Begin with yourself. Because the, the more you have self-mastery, the less we need the, the, the government to control you. So the first way to fight the overreach of the government that we have is to have more self-mastery. Now, we need more government, not less, but not of the nanny state variety, not of the jackbooted thuggery or social justice variety. We need more self-government. The best way to deal with the rampant drugs, the overabundant sexual license, the aphorist, the greed, the envy of our culture is not less government, but more self-government. Man will either govern himself or he will be governed by other men. Self-government is one of the surest ways to limit the size and scope of the civil government. Noah Webster states that government begins with the individual and the regulation of his conduct. Government, in the older definition, is moral and personal before it is practical and institutional. Without self-governed individuals who follow some moral code, we cannot expect good family, good church, good civil government to develop in any way, shape, or form. Self-control, self-mastery, self-government, you can refer to it in any of these ways. Under God is the foundation of a society. Self-control leads to Christ-likeness. If you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 5. This is Jesus' instruction to us, right? Through Peter, Peter walked with Christ, he followed Christ, he submitted himself to Christ. He learned a great deal of self-mastery as he submitted more and more of himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Peter, in, the, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, has to say about this subject. For this very reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask you again, are you going to go home and are you going to self-generate these qualities? No, you're not, right? The, the more you read about Christ, the more you understand the person and work of Christ, the more you understand the kingdom of Christ, the more you understand the law of Christ, the more you understand him, the more you submit yourself to him, the more self-mastery you will have. Right? Because it's all about what? Self-forgetfulness is what Paul calls it. He says, I don't judge even myself. He looks at his own actions. He's like, I'm not even going to judge myself. I let Christ judge me. He, his idea is complete self-renunciation. Because the point is Christ. What does Christ say? What does Christ do? What does Christ want? Where is Christ now? What is he trying to accomplish? What are his plans? What are his goals? What is his will? And the more you focus on him, the less self you have, the more mastery over yourself you will have. And then you will be people fit for liberty. Then you will be people fit for freedom. Then you will be people who can do something about, about this statist and secular society in which we live. Jesus told us to put self to death. Jesus called us to self-renunciation. Paul commends us to self-forgetfulness. The first place we must take dominion is over ourselves. Now, I've been hearing about dominion since I became a Christian, right? The dominion mandate. Let's take dominion of the world. Adam is supposed to go out and with his wife take dominion of the world. And most of us are like, yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's go, baby. Dominion, let's take it. Okay, do you have dominion over yourself? Right? <laughs> if, if, you, if you understand or study battles, okay? Now, imagine that, that the allies in World War II were like, you know what, let's just go for the jugular, baby. Let's go for Berlin. And if I were in that room with Eisenhower, I'd be like, hey, guys, I think there's a few other battles first, right? Like, I'm with you. If we took Berlin, we would just end this Nazi thing right now. But I don't think going for Berlin, I think it's an overreach. I think we're trying to go too far. I think, how about we just start with this, Normandy? Well, actually, let's back up. How about we just take control of the air? And then how about we take control of the sea? And then we'll use both of those to take control of Normandy. And then what we'll do is we'll just start stepping our way slowly towards Berlin. And, and, and what, this is what we do, right? Us. We want to take dominion. And so we say, okay, well, let's take Supreme Court. Let's do it. Let's take the Supreme Court. Let's take Congress. Let's take Washington, D.C. Let's take the White House. And, and again, you should say to yourself, you know what? You're kind of overreaching there. Like, you can't just go for Berlin, guys. You've got to start a lot smaller. If you want to, to fulfill the cultural mandate to take dominion of this world in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, start with yourself. That is a battlefield in which you are losing. Okay? You're, 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 you're jumping to battles way over here, and you've got to go back to that first war, like that first battlefield, and have a little bit more success there before you are ready to move on. Right? So, so this is what we always talk about. You, you want to deal, you want to have mastery over your spouse. 
right? You, you want to say, listen, we need more, we need, you need to be more submitted to Christ. And what do we say? We say what? Take the log out of your own eye first. And if you think about the way Christian ethics is described, it's always, how about a little bit more self-mastery, right? Those who are spiritual restore someone who's caught in sin. Self-mastery is the key to taking dominion in other areas of life. And, and, and we put the cart before the horse. We, we get, we're on the wrong battlefield fighting the wrong fight when, when really what we need to be doing is getting on our knees and asking Christ to forgive us for our sins, asking him to take more and more dominion over us, submitting more and more to the grace that has saved us and that is training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and have self-control in the present age. And if we did that, then we would be ready for more liberty. Then we would be ready to take on the status government. And so the application is rather simple. The Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world. He has overcome the world. He has put to death Satan and sin and death itself. And he stands as your Lord. Are you entirely submitted to him? How is the battle for self-mastery going? Okay, now that aside, stop getting sucked in to the Fox News secular conservative bullshit. You don't need, right? The problem is not less government out there. It's more government in here. Stop getting sucked into the mantras. Stop getting sucked into the wrong fights because it's distracting you from actually being more successful in the Christian life that God has given you in the here and now. Okay, you would make a mess of more liberty. You would make a mess of fewer taxes. Go home, right? Consider your own life. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Engage continually in that battlefield over self, right? And then move out from there into other areas to take dominion in his name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and amen. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Lord, to hear your word preached, to hear your word declared. I pray that as we go from here, Lord, and as we struggle with the things that we heard, uh, Lord, in our natural reaction to the culture as conservatives, that you would teach us to think more like Christ, to think of Christ more, Lord, and to not think of, um, of the problem being outside of this battlefield, Lord, of self-mastery. I pray that you would give us grace continually pour the, your grace upon us that we would know that we are saved, that we would know that we are yours, and that we would, um, Lord, be transformed in the present age to be image bearers of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve him and him only. In Jesus' name we pray and amen.